Take that Bible this morning or turn that Bible on to John 3. And we're going to be in that text in 16 through 21. John 3, 16 through 21 with special attention on John 3, 16. I felt led in my heart to just bring to you one truth that I think is important this morning, so vital for us, and a clarification uh, to our church. John three sixteen. follow along as I read through 21. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever comes, whoever, excuse me, does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And we really come to one of the the greatest summaries concerning the doctrine of salvation and concerning just the gospel itself in the entire New Testament. And we are studying just in this exposition or in this short series what I have titled the greatest gift ever given, and it will take us right into Christmas. And so in my own mind, I'm thinking of five weeks on the Savior, and we are examining the key elements of the doctrine of salvation that displays God's sacrificial love for the world, the key elements. And we begin last week to look at those first two elements Namely, the source of salvation, and then secondly, the scope of salvation. The first element of that doctrine of salvation is the source of salvation. And we said that it's God the Father. And God the Father so loved the world. And we spent some time there talking about who our God is, as revealed in the Word of God. And namely, that it was God the Father that when you think of the source of salvation, He is the beginning, He is the initiation, He is the source that our salvation is brought to us. And in that person of the Godhead, God the Father, He so loved the world, and we'll look at the aspect of so loved the world when we get to that phrase, that He gave His only begotten Son, or here as it's worded, that He gave His only unique Son, is the thought. And then we left off last week at the scope of salvation. The scope of salvation. Whom does God love? And you know that famous scripture, for God so loved the world. And so whom he loves is the world. And we begin last week, and I left off with different designations of the word world in the word of God. We cited three of those, that there's the world of creation, the creation of what he made, and that he does because he is God, he created the world. Secondly, we notice that that word world is used in the New Testament as an influence of evil. Certainly when John says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world, if anyone loves the things in the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. And their world, we said, is categorized as an influence of evil. That's the predominant use in the New Testament. So you got, he made the world, he made the the creation itself. But secondly, that word is used metaphorically, we can say, as an influence of evil. And then thirdly, we noted that the word world, as defined in John 3.16, Um, is that he loved the human race or loves the human race is the thought. So when you see that designation here in John 3, 16, it's, it's what you think it is. He loved the world. Okay, Pastor Scott, he loved the world. Well, in saying that, 
He loves the human race. So God so loved the world, the human race, that he gave his only begotten son. Now, as soon as we say that phrase, we are met with opposition by some. If I said the phrase, God so loved the world, in some circles that is met with opposition. And some of you might think, really? And the answer is yes. You you might tend to think that the Trinity is more difficult to understand. Some people say, how does Jesus become fully God and fully man? Well, yes, but here he's talking about the love for the world, and I'm saying that in some circles it is met with opposition. And I address this to you in my exposition of the book of Jonah. I begin to unpack that a little bit, of course, because Jonah didn't want the gospel to go to the Assyrians or the Ninevites because he couldn't conceive in his own mind that God loved Nineveh. But he did, and he sent the gospel to Nineveh by way of a wayward prophet. Okay? And so I want to return here to the great theme of God's love in the book of John. And uh, MacArthur, in his book, The Love of God, cited a friend that gave him eight articles that were circulated on the web, the World Wide Web, okay? And those articles that were posted were posted in various forms on the web, and every single one of these articles deny that God loves everyone. They deny that. These are believers citing, posting, denying what we're reading this morning on God so loved the world. Let me me address some of those. Somebody wrote, and I just have eight bullet points here. Don't worry about getting them all eight, but this is what they said. And I'm quoting each of these. The popular idea that God loves everyone is simply not found in the Scripture. That's what it said. God loves, second one, and those whom he loves, he will save. Then this question, what about the rest? The answer is, they're not loved at all. End of quotes. Another article said, sheer logic alone dictates that God would save those whom he loves. And if God loved everyone, everyone would be saved. Not everyone is saved. God does not love everyone. This is stuff that's being posted. Another thought is sheer, or scripture tells us that um, the wicked are an abomination, okay, to God. God speaks of hating Esau. How can anyone who believes Scripture claim that God loves everyone? God loves, another article said, his chosen ones. We would agree, certainly. But his attitude, quote, toward the non-elect is pure hatred. Now, that's a pretty biting statement, isn't it? This is not some radical, false religion. These are believers saying, quote, God loves his chosen ones, but his attitude toward the non-elect is pure hatred. Another one, the concept that God loves all humanity is contrary to the Scripture. God clearly does not love Everyone. And the last one, this is fairly popular today, actually. Last one said this, not only does God not love everyone, there are multitudes of people whom he loathes with an infinite hatred. And then the article said, both scripture and consistent logic, logic excuse me, force us to this conclusion, end of quote. But, beloved, neither Scripture nor sound logic 
will support those assertions, and I will show you why. According to the previous statements, God's love is limited to the elect alone. When I say that phrase, elect, to those whom God called, to those whom God chose, to those whom God predestined, and according to the previous statements, God's love is limited to the elect alone. It pictures him hating the vast majority of humanity. But beloved, honestly, that view just doesn't do justice to the Scripture. And I'm going to show you this in a moment. Perhaps one man who I have great respect for, who otherwise, other than that one doctrine, I would bring before you. His name is A.W. Pink. He has since gone to glory. He probably finds, at least to some, what is the best-known argument for this view of God not loving all in his otherwise excellent book on the sovereignty of God. It is a wonderful book. In some ways, it's a classic work that people need to read. But here's what Pink said. What, What do you think? Pink said, quote, God loves those whom he chooses. He does not love everybody. Pink went on to say, it is true that God loves the one who is despising. He said, is it true? Kind of question. Is it true that God loves the one who is despising and rejecting his blessed son? He said to tell the Christ rejecter that God loves him is to cauterize his conscience as well as to afford him a sense of security in his sins. He said the fact is that the love of God is a truth for the saints only and to present it to the enemies of God is to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs, end of quote. Some bold statements. In fact, Pink went on to argue, have you heard this view? That the word world in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, Pink argued that the world in John 3.16 refers to the world of believers. God's elect, in contradistinction from the world of the ungodly. Have you ever heard that view before? He loves the world of believers? I just don't agree with that. Or he loves only the, the, the world there means believers. I just, I don't believe that's what the scripture is saying. In fact, noted theologian D.A. Carson said of that view, he said just in his own succinct way, quote, but that really will not do, end of quote. All the evidence of the usage of the word is against that suggestion brought by Pink. What, what I find interesting is that even when you look at a classic guy who, who believes in the sovereignty of God, have you heard of him? His name is John Calvin, okay? Here's what Calvin himself said regarding John 3.16, and I think correctly so. He said, quote, the Father loves the human race, end of quote. Because we would agree that the very next verse asserts that Christ was on a search and rescue mission, not a crusade for judgment. God sent his son in the world to save the world, not to judge the world. In fact, Calvin went on to say in John 3, 16, that the, the evangelist, speaking of John the apostle, employed the universal term, whosoever, listen to what he said, both to invite all indiscriminately to partake of life, And then he said this, to cut off every excuse from unbelievers. Calvin said he invites all without exception to faith in Christ. Well said. I would affirm that. So beloved, as we come to this, I felt like we need to just address this with you as I did in Jonah one more time. When you begin to talk about the varying distinctions of God's love, you can add to that 
other arguments that are popular in our day. I think those are in your notes. Number one, the teaching of universalism. That is the teaching that has been made popular by some, some a few years back by the one-time pastor by the name of Rob Bell, who, who wrote a book on his approach to the love of God. And he basically said, to summarize the argument of his book, in the end, all will be saved. In other words, he went on to say that God's love in the end wins. Hell and punishment will eventually be swallowed up, he said, in the love of God. He has since left his church, and now he is the spiritual advisor to Oprah Winfrey. And wouldn't that fit into her theology just fine? That was the name of his book, Love Wins. Secondly, though, there is a popular teaching today on the doctrine of annihilationism. And annihilationism is the teaching that at death, believers... We would say, go into glory, but annihilationism teaches that at death, unbelievers are annihilated, and so there is no suffering in the afterlife or even a place called hell. And part of that comes out of here, the structure of trying to figure out, hey, um, some people don't embrace Christ, what happens? And so they teach that people, when they die, they just go back into the dust of the ground. Thirdly, just to touch on these, I'm just scratching these, there is what some would call hyper-Calvinism. Calvinism is the view of God as sovereign. He's sovereign over us, we just sang it. But hyper-Calvinism is the thought is that, you know, God is sovereign, and don't be so worried for you about the people who are unbelieving. It's like that man said to William Carey many years ago in the late, I think it was 1870s. Remember that man said that God will convert the heathen Mr. Carey and he does not need your help. In other words, hyper-Calvinism. They believe that God only redeems and saves those who are the elect and so therefore we have no motivation to, to go out. Fourthly, I'm just touching on these is the people who subscribe to a system called Arminianism. It came out of a man by the name of Jacob Arminius. And Arminianism taught that man decides. That man is sovereign. And I will address that in a little bit. So we have some issues when we come to that simple phrase, for God so loved the world. Each of those four categories that I just mentioned contradicts, I believe, the clear teaching of Scripture. And so what I want to do this morning, just briefly with you, is to look at five distinct ways, okay, that Scripture reveals the love of God. In other words, the Scripture paints something for us within that category of love in distinct ways, depending on the context and depending on the book. Then I'm going to demonstrate why these ways are vital to understand God's love, which I will say needs to be understood in balance, okay? And then I'm going to give you a quiz at the conclusion of our time, and I want to see if we've learned anything from this exercise, okay? But let me, let me walk through these distinct ways that I think might help you And then I'm going to give you an exhortation at the end and clarify this truth for you. I believe this will be helpful for us as we seek to exalt the Savior, and then we're going to go forward, okay? Number one, when you look at the distinct ways that Scripture reveals the love of God, number one, there is God's, I call it, perfect love. His perfect love. In other words, in the Scripture, there is a perfect love, that God the Father has for God the Son. There is a perfect love in the Scripture that God the Son has for God the Father. And we're calling that a perfect love because there's no sin within the Trinity. So when you look at Scripture, you recognize that in some ways, when it draws out that word love, there is a perfect love, an intratrinitarian, if you will, love that's bound up in the Godhead. Let me show you. Look in John 3.35. Here, it says very clearly that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. 
Now, you and I, when we read that there's a perfect love, it comes from a perfect God and a son that had never sinned. And so the father loves the son. And because of his love for the son, he's given all things into his hand. Look over at John chapter 5 in verse 20. There it says, again, that the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. But again, you have that statement that the father loves the son. Look all the way over in John chapter 17. John chapter 17. And again, this is a perfect love. It certainly doesn't exist between us because we're imperfect beings. But in that Trinitarian relationship, the Father loves the Son. John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, Jesus in his high priestly prayer, whom you have given me, may be with me that where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now we understand that. From all eternity was a perfect love from God the Father to God the Son. But also, beloved, in the Scripture, the Son loves the Father. And that love within the Trinity is reciprocal. Look back at John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, in verse 31, Jesus said, But I do, as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father Rise, let us go from here. He loves the Father. It is a perfect love bound up within the Trinity. Can you just imagine that for a moment? Where sin would never taint any relationship? Where forgiveness would never have to be extended because there's no sin within the Trinity? That the Father loves the Son, has given him all things, and the Son, in relationship to the Father, obeys the Father perfectly? There's no need of bitterness involved. There's no need of sin that ever got involved. There's no need of rivalry. There's no arguments that have ever taken place. Very well, it is the perfect love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. Secondly, though, in the Scripture, and I'm just touching on these, Scripture presents not only God's perfect love, but secondly, His providential love, okay? His providential love. Now, You're not going to hear me say the word love out of the scripture here. It's not mentioned specifically the word love, but it is implied. And what I mean by that is the scriptures are full of the concept when it talks about his providential love over creation, that everything God made in the universe, in Genesis 1.31, it records all that he made was good. In other words, he has a providential love over the creation, if you will, that all that he made from the flowers to the mountains to the seas, that God loves them, he feeds them, he sustains them. This is his providential love in the world in which we live. In fact, Matthew 5.45 says that he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the what? And the good, it says, right? He, he, he addresses that. And he sends rain on the just and the what? The unjust. It's supposed to rain here on Wednesday. And his providential love over the creation is going to be rain, Lord willing, on our valley. And he will cause that rain to come to the good and the evil. He will send that rain on the just and the unjust. Sometimes in the scripture, we call this providential love common grace, okay? It is the air we breathe, the food we eat, the water we drink, all comes from God's providential love to the entire world. Psalm 145, verse 8. I don't know if, there we have it. The Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And now this. The Lord is good to what? All. And his mercy is over all that he has made. But the Lord is is good to all there. And so bound up within the framework of love in the scripture is his perfect love. Secondly, is his providential love. Thirdly, okay, is God's particular love. His particular love. God sets his affection on his children, or on 
the elect in a particular way. Look here in the scripture under Deuteronomy chapter 7. There it is. It says, it was not speaking to the nation of Israel. It was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord, here it is, set his love on you. Now, just stop for a second. That's particular. He didn't do that with the Hivites. He didn't do that with the Artavanasites. No, I was a joke. Um, he, he, he did that. He did that to the Israel. Now, I'm just saying, you, you can say there's not a particular love, and some of you might want to argue for that. But the Scripture says there's a particular love. And he chose Israel. And he set his love, third line on you, and chose you. And you say, why? Well, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, he said there, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath he swore to your forefathers or your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, he said his particular love on this people. Deuteronomy chapter 10, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and high heaven of heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. That's particular love. That's God's sovereignty, if you will. That's what the scripture declares in this category. It is sovereign. It is elective. It is selective. And here, as we just saw, Israel is loved, not because of their goodness, but for the pure sake of the fact that God set his love upon them. It is a particular love, I I say this to you, that is not directed to all nations, okay, or all people. You know this next scripture in the book of John, when Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I, what? I chose you. If you're here this morning and you're in Christ, there is a particular love that we love because he first, what? Loved us. You have to recognize that. And he he chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Each of you who are part of Grace Church of the Valley needs to bear fruit. Here in Ephesians, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And here's the phrase, in love he, what? Predestined us. There is a particular love in the scripture. And it's undeniable. It says it right there in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. Brothers loved by God, or beloved, it says, by beloved brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. So you see that this ideal of the love of God is not so simple. I mean, it's simple that a child can get it, but it takes a degree of distinction as you look in the word of God to recognize there's a perfect love. Secondly, there's a providential love over the world. Thirdly, there is a particular love that he gives to the elect. Fourth, and I'm touching on these, God's provisional love. You say, what do you mean is provisional love? That is a love, even sounds funny to say this, that is conditioned on our obedience, okay? Jude 21 makes this statement, keep yourselves in the love of God, as though you might fall out of the love of God, and it's an exhortation to you to keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, Beloved, this is not God's perfect love, nor is it his providential love. It's difficult for you to explain as, you know, it's difficult, if you will, to escape his providential love because it's going to rain and it it will rain on Wednesday. You experience that. Nor is this his particular love for the elect. His provisional love, listen, is a love that is conditioned in our obedience to him. So statements like this come up. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And then he says this, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, 
you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. He's exhorting you within his provisional love to obey him and love him. There's other scriptures that go on to say precisely that. Now, I want to make this distinction for you, as Carson did in his book. This is not how one becomes a believer, but it is our ongoing relationship with God once we've come to know him, okay? In other words, there's a provisional aspect of that love. For example, when my kids were young, and I think I've shared this with you before, I would often say to them, I love you no matter what, what, right? In other words, there's an unconditional love there. I love you, and then I would follow it up with a statement, I love you just because. In other words, I'm telling them that as God is loved unconditionally, I love them unconditionally. Yet, if one of them disobeys, they will know the fallout of that quickly. I still love them, but as Hebrews 11 says, there is discipline because he does love us. So bound up in the love of God is a provisional love that is conditioned, if you will, on our obedience. In fact, look at the next statement. This statement's like this. Psalm 103, okay? It says there, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who, what? Fear him. It's not on everybody. It's, to, it's towards those who fear him. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who, what? Fear him. That is conditional. But the steadfast of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who, what? Fear him. And his righteousness to children's children. Here's the condition. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. And so this is seen in the word of God. There is a relationship with God of love that is conditioned for the believer, in this case, upon our obedience to him, okay? So there you have it. And then the last one, number five, is God's passionate love for the world, okay? It's his passionate love for the fallen world. And when we say a passionate love, we really mean, does the scripture, does the, the, the Greek, if you will, it means the human race. And so that is our text this morning. John 3.16 is God so loved the world. He loves the human race, if you will. Do you remember when John the Baptist, earlier when we were looking in John 1.29, said, Behold, when John laid eyes on Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the, what? Of the world, of, of the human race, that he, he loves the world. He, he loves the human race, okay? And here the world is humans, if you will, human beings, the human race, without distinction, without exception. And so the scope of God's love under here, number five, is his love includes all human beings. So you have the perfect love of God. You have the providential love of God. You have the particular love of God. You have the provisional love of God for believers. And you have the passionate, Carson called it, the yearning love that God has for people. Okay? Now, I'm going to ask this question. So what? So that usually means I'm into my application right now. Okay? So what is it? How do I, Scott, what do I do with this? What is the, what is the, what do you want me to do? Or, or what's the so what of this truth? And what I want to do is drive these distinctions home for you, for us, so that there's going to be balance within the love of God. That there's going to be beauty in the love of God. That you're going to see how God Almighty, though there's a particular love, 
for the elect. There's a passionate love for the world. And those things must be brought together in balance and beauty so that we see the love of God as revealed. Listen, if you absolutize any of these distinctions, your understanding of God's love will be diminished. I'll say it again. If you absolutize any of these distinctions, your understanding of God's love in the Scripture will be diminished. It will be, I would say it this way, distorted, okay? You say, well, what do you mean by that? If one overstates, for example, if you overstate, as you look at your notes there, God's provisional love, now remember that's where I quoted Jude, to keep oneself in the love of God. If you overemphasize his provisional love, you can run into trouble. If you separate that from other biblical statements about the love of God, his love for you unconditionally, if you overemphasize just keep yourselves in the love of God, such text may drive you to a performance theology, okay? It kind of a performance treadmill where you have endless doubt whether or not you have been good enough to enjoy the love of God. In other words, if you just pound that one at the expense of the other distinctions, you'll leave people with no security, okay? However, if you overemphasize God's passionate love for the world, okay, then you would then you blunt and even fail to recognize his particular love for the elect. In other words, you can just emphasize, emphasize, emphasize that he loves the world and never see in there that there's many scriptures that speak of his particular love for the elect. If you overemphasize distinction number five, you produce a man-centered gospel Okay? that robs God of his glory, and it exalts man in his choices. It robs God of his sovereignty, and then it strips you of your eternal security before the Lord that he promised to you. And so you've got to hold these things in balance. If, on the other hand, you, could be one of you, overemphasize, listen, God's particular love for the elect you strip God of his passionate love for the world. And that is what is known as hyper-Calvinism, okay? So you see these have to be held as you look at these truths. An exclusive view, listen, of number three, particular love, withholds the free offer of the gospel to sinners And it blunts then, therefore, God's passionate love for the world. So you can see maybe that the man who was talking to William Carey, who basically said, go sit down, young man. God is more concerned for the heathen, and you don't have to worry about it. There's a man who's so focused potentially on particular love that he never fails to recognize that bound up within the Scripture, I'm telling you, and you know this, the Bible says that God so loved the what? The world. He loves the the human race. In fact, a a strict view of particular love claims, now back to those questions, that God loves the elect, but he hates the reprobate, if you will, the wicked. And some object to view number five altogether. You know that, his passionate love, which I think is revealed in the scripture, as I've showed you, and I'll show you more in a minute. In a minute, Some people just quote this one in Psalm 711, that God is angry with the wicked how often? Every day. It says that. And so they would say, you don't have to wonder if God loves the sinner. If he condemns them, then he doesn't love them, is what they think. And here's what I would say to that, is yes, God hates sin, but we also see in the scripture a genuine, sincere love and appeal that God has for man where he extends the gospel to all and he pleads, if you will, for others to turn from their wicked ways and live. So listen, the gospel, beloved, is an offer 
of God's divine mercy to everyone without exception. It is a gracious offer to all humanity. Salvation is freely and indiscriminately offered to all. And I'll say more on that in just a moment. So listen, we cannot overemphasize one aspect of God's love at the expense of another. We cannot strip God's love of its diverse distinctions in Scripture. When you do that, your vision of God becomes distorted on how he is gloriously revealed in all of the Scripture. And so without understanding these distinctions, we are in grave danger of misunderstanding God's love. It would be like this in the fable. Six blind men from birth lived in India. And one day, these blind men from birth decided to visit a palace. And when they arrived, there was an elephant in the courtyard. And the first blind man touched the side of the elephant and said, the elephant is like a wall. The second blind man touched the trunk and he said, the elephant is like a snake. The third blind man touched the the tusk and said, the elephant is like a spear. The fourth blind man touched the leg and said, the elephant is like a tree. The fifth blind man touched the ear and said, the elephant is like a fan. And the sixth blind man touched the tail and said, an elephant is like a rope. And listen, because each man touched only a part of the elephant, they couldn't agree on what the elephant is really like. And similarly, listen, Christians have misconceptions about God's love. And what I'm telling you, body, is this, is that God in his infinite wisdom provided these distinctions so that you would think rightly about him, that you would see his character in balance. So let me give you a quiz, okay? We're going to say these are yes or no. How would you answer to see if we've, if, if we've learned anything here, okay? Yes or no, how would you say God's love, number one, is unconditional, It's unconditional. How would you answer that? What would you think? Well, we'd have to say, looking back on what we just said, yes, is as it relates to God's particular love, it's unconditional. God didn't love Israel because they were more in number. God didn't love them because they were better. God didn't love them because they're prettier. God just set his love on them as a nation. It was particular. So if you said, is God's love unconditional, is is it unconditional? We would say, yes, it's all grace. Israel is a picture of that. Your salvation is a picture of that. However, that would not be true in the fourth distinctive. So that's not true in the fourth distinctive? No, remember, that's the provisional love, is that God will discipline his children, Hebrews chapter 11, And so practically for you to tell a wandering believer that he or she is unconditionally loved may be damaging to his or her spiritual life. They need to obey God to experience that love in a relationship if they're really his children. So the statement is true and not true at the same time in an an exclusive way. It depends what we're talking about. Secondly, God loves everyone in the same way, yes or no? Does he love everyone in the same way? Well, listen, it's true in the second distinctive, fair? It's true in the second distinctive, in his providential love, his common grace goes to all. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, But that's not true, that statement, that he loves everybody in the same way, with the third distinctive of his particular love, God's electing love. God does not love everyone in the same way. You say he doesn't? Well, no, he doesn't. 
a writer illustrated it this way, and I think it's helpful. He said, I love my neighbors, and I am commanded in the Scripture to love them as I love myself. He said, I also love my wife. That, too, is in Scripture. But clearly, my love for my wife is superior, both in excellence and in degree, to my love for my neighbor. He said, I chose my wife. I did not choose my neighbor. I willingly brought my neighbor into my family to live with me for the rest of our lives. There's no reason to conclude that since I do not afford the same privilege to my neighbors, that my love for them is not real and genuine. Likewise, it is with God. He loves the elect in a special way only reserved for them. But that doesn't make his love for the rest of humanity any less real. I mean, you could put it another way. You can say, I love my children with a father's love. Yet again, I love them with a different quality of love than that for my wife. I love my Christian neighbors in a way that rises above my love for my non-Christian neighbors, quoting Galatians 6, to do good to the household of God. So listen, beloved, we've got to hold these distinction of God's love in balance. MacArthur put it this way, we cannot overemphasize one view of God's love at the expense of another. We must be balanced. We must see God's love as well as his attributes, all of his attributes in the scripture. And ultimately, that just brings me to this last question, really, for us. Does God love the world? How would you answer after we looked at this? Of course he does. You say, well, he loves the world? Yes, it says it so clearly. For God so loved the world, okay, that he gave his only begotten son. So when we talk about the source of our salvation, it's God so loved. When we talk about the scope of salvation, listen, this is all I wanted to say to you today, is he loves the world, And I'm telling you, when you find those scriptures in the word of God, that is real. That is genuine. That is sincere. That when you're talking to people, you have the confidence that bound up within the distinctions of his love is this passionate, yearning love for the world that is real, that is sincere, that is genuine. I'm thinking of 1 John 2, 2, some of these scriptures we've seen. He is the propitiation, satisfaction for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole, what? World. You can go to people and tell them that God loves them and has a plan to redeem them. 1 John 4, 9, in this is love, and this is the love of God was made manifest amongst us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him, okay? He didn't send his son only to the elect. We'll look at that in a couple weeks, but he sent him into the world. First John 4, 14, and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of what? Of the world. So listen, God's particular... Love for the elect does not render God's passionate love for the world null and void. And I just want to make sure that we're very clear in that. And and the reason that it's clear to me is it's number one stated in the scripture, beloved. But secondly, listen, you have over and over challenges given to you to turn and live. Choices that you make that render you either one in Christ or not in Christ. Think about this test in Ezekiel. Say to them, God says to the prophet, do you think God's insincere in this? Oh, no. I think it's from his passionate, yearning heart. Say to them as I live, and of course this is to the nation of Israel, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the what? Wicked. That's what it says. So if you conceive in your mind... As God, as a God of wrath and angry with the wicked every day, I understand that scripture. He's against sin. His holiness makes him against sin. However, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
but that the wicked would turn from his way and what? Live. And then this command, turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. That is a pleading heart of God. Who's on your mind today? Who are you going to go talk to? Who are you going to talk to at Thanksgiving time? I mean, I'm just telling you, this is real. This is sincere. This is a genuine plea from the heart of God for people to turn and come to them. Psalm 81, 13. Here, God says, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Now listen, if, if you overemphasize his sovereignty and fail to see his command given, you'll fail to see what people need to do. Jesus said, you know this in Matthew 11, come to me, who? Who did he say come? All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. It's a call to all. You can tell people that. Here bound up in the next scripture in John 6 is both sovereignty, all that the Father gives to me will, in fact, what? Come to me. And then now he opens the scope here. And whoever comes to me, I will never, what? Cast out. This is a real, genuine, sincere offer. So listen. Um, how do you view people? I'm telling you, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loved all of the world. He loves the Ninevite people. He loves the Assyrian people. He loves people from different colors and races and so forth. He loves the entire world and his gospel goes to all. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, in essence, come. These are gospel extensions of mercy to the world. Isaiah 45, turn to me and be what? Saved. Do you think that's not genuine? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that about you. I just think some people don't think that's genuine. No, I think when God says, turn to me and be saved, comma, all the what? The ends of the earth, and we ought to be pumped up as you're worshiping here. They worshiped in poker debts today with about 80 Albanian youth that started that church. He wants the whole world to turn to him and be safe, for I am God, and there is no other. How about this one? Last one by Jesus. Do you think he was real? Do you think he was sincere? Do you think he was genuine? My answer is yes. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jesus said, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not what? Well, he doesn't say anything about his sovereignty there. It just says you had a group of people there that were not willing. So listen, beloved, what is your response this morning? I'm saying God loves the, the world of humanity, and so should you. Amen? So listen, when we get to this, for God so loved the world, it's clear amongst us within the Scripture. The source is God. The scope of it is He loves, number five, the fallen human race with a yearning love. It doesn't take away from His particular love. Praise God that He redeemed us. But listen, His heart and the genuine offer of the gospel is extended to all. 